Welcome to the Altruistic Libertarian, Advocate for a Genuinely Free Society. I'm Anthony Wheeler, and today we cover a couple of topics, an intermission of sorts, before we continue with another intervention case study. We begin with the discussion of Angelus Novus, a painting by Paul Klee, the one you can see over my left shoulder on the wall. The painting was owned by Walter Benjamin. Walter Benjamin was a German Jew, a German Jewish writer who did most of his work in the 20s and the 30s. He suffered a tragic end when he attempted to leave Europe in 1940. Along with others attempting to escape from the Nazis, he was waiting on the border between France and Spain when his group was informed that they would not be allowed to enter Spain, but instead must return to France. That night, Benjamin died, apparently from deliberately taking an overdose of the drugs he carried. The next day, the authorities relented and allowed the group to proceed into Spain. Anyway, there are three writers at the core of my intellectual worldview whom I read and reread. They are Nietzsche, George Steiner, and Walter Benjamin. Unlike Nietzsche and Steiner, though, Benjamin hasn't really contributed to my worldview in the way the other two have. Benjamin was associated with the Frankfurt School, a group of neo-Marxists and cultural critics that did much of their work under the aegis of the Institute of Social Research. The Institute was led by Max Horkheimer and included Theodore Adorno, who worked closely with Benjamin. In the four volumes of Walter Benjamin's collected works translated into English, despite the amazing array of topics, genres, academic spheres, historic analysis, analysis, literary commentary, and cultural criticism contained in his work, he never crosses into political economy. The closest he comes to the topic is when he writes in a letter to a close friend, and I quote, Of course, I lack the particulars to form my own opinion, which is not at all my strong point in concrete politics, unquote. Smith provides a summary consistent with my reading of Benjamin, reflecting Benjamin's work, weak ideological connection with Marxism. I quote, The emancipatory turn to a critique of society, the choice and values favoring communal culture, the turning away from the purely theoretical sphere, and the insight into the necessity of social activism led Benjamin to Marx. In Benjamin's view, the bourgeois world is not a society without communities, but a world of the open, plural communities embedded in many different traditions. A world which is not transcended but depraved by the tendency of commodity production by, to universalize the market, to atomize the individual, and to destroy tradition. Furthermore, since he does not trace every repression back to economic exploitation, the concept of emancipation receives new dimensions and cannot be reduced to economics and politics." Unquote. Perhaps the primary appeal that Benjamin has for me, along with Nietzsche, is the centrality of art within his, his philosophical universe. Quote, from a systematic point of view, the center of all Benjamin's work of reflection is the question of the work of art. The work of art constitutes a strategic place where the theological situation of the contemporary age, the source of tradition and of memory, manifests itself. But the modern work is, is modern work of art is also the, also the stakes in multiple subversions that target the deceptiveness of art's appearance, its illusory beauty, myth, and ideology. The fundamental poria of Benjamin thought forms around a philosophical need for art, formulated in the name of truth and a need to reduce the ambiguity and illusions that disenchantment combined with the recurrent images of a rescue operation. But this process is also close to that of modern art itself, 
and its self-destructive adventure, of which Benjamin has become, for that very reason, one of its exemplary theorists." Unquote. As I said, Benjamin hasn't really contributed to my, my worldview. In fact, I rarely agree with his conclusions, despite my admiration for how he gets there. He was a complex writer and I didn't always understand him. But unlike other difficult writers, I put most of the blame for that on me. Rochlitz tracks major influences on Benjamin and the challenge to integrate them. And I quote, For a dozen years, the interlacing objections of Brecht, Adorno, and Scholem would be a determining factor in the development of Benjamin's thought, though he did not manage to make a real theoretical synthesis of these heterogeneous imperatives. My writings have certainly always conformed to my convictions, he wrote to Scholem in 1934, but I have only seldom made the attempt, and then only in conversation, to express the whole contradictory grounds from which those convictions arise in the individual manifest manifestations they have taken. This, the indisputable richness resulting from this unstable situation, which has delighted the literary interpreters of his work, goes hand in hand with a certain philosophical incoherence." Unquote. Benjamin traces social and cultural conditions beyond economics and politics in direct contrast with orthodox Marxist thought. All to the good, as we get such literary gems as the following. Quote, What in the end makes advertisement so superior to criticism? Not what the moving red neon sign says, but the fiery pool reflecting it in the asphalt. Unquote. But back to, back to Angelus Novus. This is what the painting meant to Benjamin and now means to me. Quote, a clay painting named Angelus Novus shows an angel looking as though he is about to move away from something he is fixedly contemplating. His eyes are staring, his mouth is open, his wings are spread. This is how one pictures the angel of history. His face is turned towards the past. Where we perceive a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage until and, and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead, and make whole what has been smashed. But a storm is blowing from paradise. It has got caught in his wings with such violence that the angel can no longer close them. The storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned, while the pile of debris before him grows skyward." Unquote. In this next topic, I wish to distinguish my philosophy from my life. What I advocate in this program is deeply separated from how I live my life. I don't recommend to anyone the decisions I have made or what I do. My life is unique, as is yours. For example, I will advocate in a future episode the legalization of all drugs. But I don't take drugs. When a young man, I drank appropriately, that is, a lot. These days I rarely drink a beer. I, also, I, I smoked almost two packs a day but quit decades ago. My biggest struggle has been with caffeine. I finally quit some four years ago after decades of problems with it. As a young man, I didn't like smoking weed. But a few years ago, I thought I would give it another try. Who knows? Lots of people swear by it. After getting high every day for seven days straight, I quit. Why? I mean, it was okay. I had some good times. But I didn't read or write one single word in seven days, and that was unacceptable. After a root canal, a dentist got me hooked on Vicodin. Found out years later he missed part of the root, but he just kept giving me more painkillers. That was the easiest addiction to beat. I just threw the handful of pills down the drain. 
I share these details to make a point. I don't have any moral qualms against taking recreational drugs. I have health concerns, quality of life concerns, but no moral concerns. It's my personal life decisions that keep me drug free. But who knows, maybe in later years I'll try something else. But in the meantime, I would legalize them all. In making the distinction between my philosophy and my life, my primary interest is remaining intellectually independent, even from my own desires. Now, the Marxists would claim that maintaining such independence is impossible, and that unlike every other non-Marxist, I suffer from a false consciousness that leads me to support the ru ruling ideology. I can't prove that this is not true. As I've already indicated, everybody possesses a unique worldview, perhaps just another way of saying false consciousness. Nobody sees the world in its entire, or understands everything there is to understand, or any single thing in its to in actual totality. But I would counter the Marxist with two points. First, I am of no single class. I have dined with billionaires, and I've lived out of my car. I have worked in the largest corporations at all levels, served in the military, worked with my hands for decades, and owned a small business. What am I? Capitalist? Proletariat? Petite bourgeois? Born, to a, born into a lower middle class family, attending a variety of schools and living in different places from one end of the country to another and several times overseas, I am barely an American, let alone something more definable. In other words, there is no single class or ideology that I want, wish to support or to defend. Secondly, the philosophy I advocate favors no particular class. In fact, special interests, large corporations, the banks perhaps, and lobbyists would generally reject everything I express because it threatens their interest. See, what you can do in an interventionist democracy can't be done in a genuinely free society. In a word, you won't see any corporate sponsors for the altruistic libertarian. For my next topic, I wish to discuss my goal with this program. Yes, I'm advocating many things, but my goal is not to convince or to persuade. My, go my primary goal is to be understood. To that end, I am attempting to provide as much relevant context as possible so that in the end, I will be understood. If I am successful, and you understand me, what you do with that understanding is up to you. If you disagree, I would recommend seeking to understand why I believe as I do and how that differs from your worldview. Doing so will either strengthen your worldview or offer an opportunity to enhance yours in new ways. Only critically minded, autonomous individuals can do that effectively. In fact, the vast majority of reading and thinking I have done in the past decade or so has been with thinkers that challenge my worldview. Most recently, Zizek. For those of you in the process of building your own worldview, I don't think you can be convinced or persuaded about anything, especially if you are a critical thinking, autonomous individual. So imagine that you exist on one side of an opaque barrier, on the other side of which roams the ex existential truth of the world. Everything on your side of the barrier you perceive just fine. My face, that chair, the buzz of a bee perhaps. But what is not so obvious, the genuine nature of beauty, the origin of biological life, the makeup of distant stars, and the best way for people to live together, exists on the other side of the barrier and requires conceptual leaps to comprehend it. Now imagine you perceive a tiny thread protruding from the barrier, 
That thread represents the beginning of some specific element of esoteric knowledge. You carefully graft one end of it and gently pull until more of the thread is revealed. That would be equivalent to thoughtfully reading about a subject and gradually understanding it better, or listening to somebody like me as I attempt to teach you something about it. In that case, I stand on the other side of the barrier, unseen by you, creating the thread of understanding you pull into your cognitive world. But note this carefully. No matter how hard I push on that thread, it goes nowhere without you on the other side pulling. In other words, no book or teacher or school or YouTube program can force genuine understanding on somebody else. The best, best they can do is alert you to the existence of something worth seeking, perhaps indicating where on your wall to start looking. But then you must do all of the work. This often takes patience and persistence to wrest the thread entirely free of the wall. In some cases, the issue is so fundamental, so significant, it's more like a thick rope than a thread and requires all of your mental strength to move it an inch in your direction. While making the effort, sometimes a large knot of rope breaks through into your world, perhaps tying together multiple threads into a coherent whole. We call those epiphanies. Sometimes you reveal the entire thread, that is you fully understand, but decide that it doesn't fit into your world view and you reject it and simply toss it aside. So in relation to the wall metaphor, I am simply attempting to provide enough context to be understood well enough so that you can identify those threads and create the understanding for yourself to do with what you please. Well, that concludes our show for today. In the next episode, ep next episode we will begin another case study on the deadly highways. Until then, peace. <laughs>